Hey, our team, thank you guys for putting that together. I'd ask them to lead us in that. That's, uh, um, well, let's just put it this way. I didn't see as many hands raised, you know, as we were singing through it. It's, it's a little heavier, a little harder. Um, I, I wanted to give some, some context uh, before we jump into this section of Romans, and especially when Paul talks about not being ashamed of the gospel. And this hymn we sang, it's a really old hymn. Uh, it's long. We didn't sing all of it. Um, there's another section. I'll, I'll read to you just uh, one more section from it. It goes on. It says, Careless sinner, what will become of thee? Horrors past imagination will surprise your trembling heart. When you hear your condemnation, hence a cursed wretch depart. Thou with Satan and his angels have thy part. Think, poor sinner, thy eternal alls at stake. It's a, um, uh, a John Newton hymn. You guys know John Newton? You guys know what I'm talking about? Most of you guys are more familiar with another hymn he wrote. Uh, we know it as Amazing Grace. And so I think most of you like the Amazing Grace hymn more than the one we just sang. Uh, but I think the balance of that helps us. What I really wanted you to note is 200 years ago, and um, the hymn we just sang, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders, was in right at 50% of all of the English hymns in the world. It was in 50% of them. Just a smidgen more than Amazing Grace. Today, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders is in less than 5% of our English hymnals, and Amazing Grace is somewhere a little bit in the low 70s. We live in a different world, and the reality is we do not like to talk about judgment. We don't like to talk about wrath, and we certainly do not like to talk about the consequence of our sin. I mean, think about it on your end. When's the last time you sang a song like the one we sang this morning. And at Tri-Cities, by the way, I'm just going to go ahead and let you know, we focus most of what we sing, I think as we should, on the attributes and characteristics of who God is, his work. But we also recognize, just like in the psalmist, there is a place for recognizing man's response in light of who God is. When's the last time you prayed for the wrath of God against sin like we read so many of the psalmists pray? See, we live in a different day. I mean, no doubt we are a sensitive bunch, right? And listen, all of you think the other people are sensitive. You're sitting here going, I'm old school. Now, these, these people today, they're all a bunch of sensitive people, not me. No, you are too. I am too. It's part of our worldview. But the question that I've got to ask you this morning is just as a culture is, are our sensitivities suppressing the gospel? Does our cultural sensitivities suppress the gospel? My daughter brought this to my attention recently. We were reading um, The Biggest Story. It's a, it's a great resource. If you're here and you're parents of like late preschool, early elementary, it's a great narrative Bible story book that chases the gospel proclamation or the gospel message all the way through scripture. 
It's by Kevin DeYoung. It's a great resource. It's one of Lena's favorite Bible story books. We've used it for years. In it, her favorite line, <laughs> and it's her favorite just because it has the word dumb in it. In my house, we're easily amused, okay? So if you're looking for a lot of deep meaning of why this is her favorite line, remember she is my daughter, all right? So it's a line about Judah. And early on in Israel's history, if you remember, God had promised Abraham that his descendants would be great. They would be a great nation and a great land, and all the people of the world would be blessed through them. But if you remember anything about Abraham's descendants, especially by the time you get to Jacob or Israel, man, the 12 tribes of Israel were a mess. And Kevin DeYoung is kind of breaking that down, and he's talking about how these are just really messy people. And he gets to Judah, and he says, Judah did such dumb stuff, we don't even want to talk about it. And you guys know what Judah did off the top of your head? Yeah, see, a few of you. Don't, don't feel bad. I asked some people in the office today. I mean, they work at the church, right? A lot of them didn't know either. Now, when I told them, they kind of remembered. You know why they didn't know, I think? Because we don't like to talk about it. See, Judah's sons died. One of them is very graphic. I won't tell you how, why God killed one of them. But as a result, he has no more descendants. And Judah was traveling and decided he would take a prostitute and did not recognize that it was his daughter-in-law. She would give birth to twins, one of which, his name is Perez, which would be the great, 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 great grandfather of the Lion of Judah. Found his way in Matthew chapter 1. It's even in the New Testament, along with Tamar, the daughter-in-law. It was graphic, it's raw, it's uncensored, not something we want to talk about. And as Lena and I are talking through this, because, you know, at some point she goes, so what did he do, right? So when we talk through that, I was kind of faced with the reality, if the Bible is God's word, how he reveals himself to man, he does not share our sensitivities, he regularly addresses things that we don't want to talk about. And his definition of what is appropriate and beneficial is much different than ours. I, I specifically think about the way we think about our kids, because remember, this was the context I'm thinking about it with my own daughter. And in Deuteronomy chapter 31, it's just one of the many places in which God's people are commanded to read the entirety of God's word, to the people. And in verse 11 in chapter 1 it says, When all of Israel come together before the Lord, read this law before all of Israel in their hearing. And at this time, what we're talking about is really the whole Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, where the story of Judah and Tamar is found, and a lot of other graphic things we don't want to talk about. And if there was doubt about who we should read this to, goes on in verse 12, he says, assemble the people, men, women, little ones. And then he goes in and says, and the sojourners within your towns. That's an important phrase because what that means is that's saying also to the outsiders. 
Now that's really important because sometimes I think in our setting, we think we have to protect the outsiders from God, from his revelation. They'll think that's weird. Let's not talk about that. That might keep them from knowing God. God didn't seem to be concerned with that. And he says, be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear it and learn to fear the Lord your God. The fullness of the law. This is a New Testament principle too. Paul says this to Timothy, to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. See, here's the point. God is not embarrassed by his wrath And he is not ashamed of his judgment. So we must ask ourselves, should we be embarrassed by it? Oh, listen, I know we're shamed by it, no doubt. But should we hide from it? Perhaps more importantly, should we hide it from others? I think this is the context. See, this is the tension that we find ourselves here in Romans chapter 1. Mike's right. They're saying, you're not going to come here to Rome and defend the gospel. But this isn't just something intellectual that's being accused. Paul gives the defense in verse 16. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. See, if the gospel was just peace and joy and love and salvation and eternal life and just bliss, there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's no conflict. See, if that's the case, the gospel is just like a backpack you throw on and you add on to your life. But it doesn't confront you and tell you that your life is desperately broken. That unless you die to yourself, you will not know Jesus and eternal life. And that is the context in which Paul is going to begin his gospel proclamation to the Romans. See, when we pick up here in verse 18, that's how he's going to begin. And it's not a message that begins with, it's all going to be okay. Instead, he gives an alarming big truth. And our big truth this morning, the wrath of God is revealed against all who sin and suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed against all who sin and suppress the truth. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Note the opening truth claim. Note the big truth that sets this up here in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed. It is presently active. Revealed is past tense. It's been introduced. You're living in it. Against all who sin and suppress the truth. And the next 25 verses into chapter 2 are going to unpack this big truth. They're going to give us the implications of what this means for God and for us. We at Tri-Cities, we kind of give handles to that sometimes, and we talk about the big truth and big ideas. These are big ideas. 
that we're led through in these next 25 verses. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to overview 10 of them. And we're just going to catch an overview of these 25 verses to come. And we're going to see an important part of the gospel that we often don't want to talk about. And next week, we're going to come back and we're going to look more specifically at some examples that are given within this section. And so let's get started. Our first big idea, God is revealed in creation. God is revealed in creation. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. God has made himself known in creation. His existence, his attributes are clearly perceived, Paul says. What that actually means is they've been experienced They've been known through our experience. You've you've seen them. You've heard them. Your very existence gives testimony to God. We have experienced His revelation. He has made Himself known, and it is plain to them. And by the way, in the first few verses, we're going to see they, them, their. We're going to see these kind of general terms all of which get their original context back in verse 18 and are defined by all men. It's all the men who sin and suppress truth. Now, we know by reading ahead in Romans in chapter 3 that all have sinned, all have suppressed the truth. So what I want you to understand is, although we're reading this and Paul is generalizing this introduction almost as a hook, if you will, to the Romans, we need to understand that the they here, the them in this case, refers to all of mankind. Past, present, and future. It refers to you. It refers to me. We have all sinned. And God has made plain to us who he is through creation. And as a result, our second big idea, we are all witnesses to God's creation. Verse 21 begins, for although they knew God, they knew God. Ever since creation, verse 20, ever since the creation of the world, they knew God. They, all men, know God. All are witness to his self-revealing creation. I remember when I was a kid, I don't know, I was probably like 10, something like that. Back when I was a kid, parents would let us just go wander around through the woods because it was safe and we would do stuff like that. And uh, so I'm like a mile from my house and on this riverbank and there's these cliffs and I'm climbing these cliffs. And as I was telling the story at 930, I realized, yeah, what I was doing wasn't safe at all. And maybe there's some reason we change, I don't know. But I'm climbing on these cliffs and I'm like halfway up and I'm on this little ledge and I discovered a little like mini cave. And in that moment, I knew I was right up there with Christopher Columbus. <laughs> no one had ever seen this little cave. Now, as an adult, you know how things are different as an adult. I'm sure if I went there as an adult, it is no more than a hole in a rock, okay? 
But I'm convinced I have discovered an amazing cave, and I am so excited. I literally climb down the cliff. I run a mile back home. I get a flashlight and some tools to explore my cave. I run all the way back a mile, climb back up the cliff, and go face-first flashlight into the cave. Now, I'm a little nervous because I'm 10, and, you know, no one's ever been here before. Who knows what's in there? I might discover a dragon. You just never know. And I shine the flashlight in, and just on the other side of the darkness, I saw a hammer. I was never more depressed in my life to find a hammer. See, the hammer told me something. Someone has been here before. Now, I could try to think through all the ways that a hammer could make itself and just randomly appear in my new cave. But I realized that the hammer meant someone else had been there before. When we step back and we note creation, we see the hand of God. As he generally reveals himself to the world, to the point that there is parts of his divine attributes and character that we can know And so third, God is worthy to be exalted. God is worthy to be exalted. Verse 21 continues, says, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Although his eternal power and divine nature had been clearly perceived, they didn't honor him. They didn't glorify him. They didn't praise him. They didn't give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, we must acknowledge something. Our very creation purposes us to exalt God. See, if he is the one true God, that means all things are set according to him. He defines what is value. He gives and assigns worth. It all comes back to Him. He sets our purpose. And as a result, He is worthy of honor and praise. And make sure you get this because this is really important. It is the only right way to respond to who He is. This is the only right response to God is to worship and to honor and exalt. Any other response before God is wrong and suppresses the truth of who he is. And that's what we see happen and that's what we see Paul describe as we move to our fourth big idea. God is worthy to be exalted, but we are all suppressors of God. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Man exalted other things, lesser things, created things. Man worshiped false gods and suppressed the true God. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason, for the adultery, for the false worship, for suppressing who God is, again, God gave them up. This is the second time we see this. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. It's the third time God's given them up, right? Again, they didn't acknowledge God. Instead, they suppressed him. God gave them up to themselves and to their own passions and their own lusts. In verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malicious or malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In our sin, we suppress the truth of who God is. We reject our creator and we suppress him by worshiping lies. We withhold his honor and his praise. And as a result, we live in God's revealed wrath present. As he turns us over to our lusts, to our desires, to our lies. There is a debate to the extent of man's depravity, his propensity to sin. And this is as far as I want to get into this this morning, but I want to make sure you catch this, okay? Because it's important to understanding the depths of the gospel. No place in Scripture does God turn over man to their own desire and man go do good. Every time man chooses evil, he chooses sin, he chooses unrighteousness, he chooses pride, he chooses to suppress the truth of who God is. We sin. Now listen. Even as we suppress God, He supplies while we suppress the truth of who he is, while we rob him of the glory and the honor he is due, the Father supplies love. The Father supplies mercy. The Father supplies salvation. The Father supplies the Son. 
while we were yet sinners, separated, suppressing the truth of who God is, He supplies for us. And see, if you don't understand the depth of your sin, if you don't understand the depth of your depravity, if you don't understand the depth of your suppressing of who God is, you will not understand the depths of the love He supplies. That is incredible. That even as we suppress, the Father supplies. And it leads us to our fifth big idea that God is right to be angry. He is right to be angry. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. God made himself known to us, known to mankind. And we did not acknowledge him. Instead, we commit adultery against our creator. So many prophets use that terminology. Again, it's, we don't want to talk about it that way, but that's the illustration that's used through much of our Old Testament. We committed adultery against our Creator. And not only do we give ourselves away to a lie, verse 32, we give approval to those who practice them. Not only does man sin, but we minimize sin. And we approve it in others. Perhaps the greatest sin of the Western church is our silence. As we silently give approval to sin and suppress the truth of who God is. See, evangelism, sharing the gospel, it's not ultimately really about soul winning. See, the reason that we at Tri-Cities Baptist Church hold up things and practical tools like our three names and we compel our people and you to go be ambassadors, champions of the good news where you live, where you work, where you play, the reason we ultimately do this is because it's an act of worship. Because how can you know the truth of who God is and suppress him in silence? There is no greater act of worship than to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus in the midst of the darkness. See, evangelism isn't first about soul winning. It's first about worship. I mean, at the end of the day, guys, I don't hate to break it to you. You're not going to convince somebody into heaven. That belongs to the work of the Holy Spirit. Our responsibility is to proclaim and to worship our one true God that he might be known. God has a right to be angry. Not just because of our sin, but because the truth of who he is is being suppressed. And if God is right to be angry, number six, we are all without excuse. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourselves. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I want you to notice something. I want you to notice the switch from the them, from the they. Therefore, you have no excuse. 
Paul begins to personalize the message. You have no excuse. You are guilty. All of mankind is without excuse because we all suppress the truth of who God is in our sin. The guy who is good in his own mind is without excuse. The guy who worships the Hindu God of his culture with devotion and love as he was raised by his father to do, as his father raised his father and so on, is without excuse. The man in the jungle who has never heard the name of Jesus is without excuse. You, my friend, me, we are without excuse. Without excuse, guilty before a righteous and angry God. Paul will go on to clearly proclaim, all have sinned. You're the man. You're you're guilty. It reminds me, as he sets this up a little bit in the Old Testament, do you remember Nathan and David? And Nathan goes to confront David with his sin with Bathsheba, and he doesn't just come in and say, hey, you sinned. He comes in and he kind of gives this illustration, this setup, right? And he talks about this lamb, he gives this illustration, and David's furious. It's, It's in front of him. And then all of a sudden, Nathan looks at him and he goes, you're the man. This morning, I want you to know something. You are guilty without excuse. You are the man. Every one of you. God, number seven, is acting in his anger. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed and is presently active. Paul explains this three times in the section that we've read, this revelation of God's wrath, as he says, God gave them up. Three times. It is the revealed wrath of God. The active turning over man to himself, which results in deep brokenness and sin. And consequence. And yes, by the way, and we'll talk about these next week, homosexuality is mentioned as an extreme example of that. But I want you to know in the same section, that may not be your struggle, but there's a lot of other stuff we're going to find ourselves guilty of. And things we want to downplay. I told my daughter, I said, you know, right there somewhere between like around a murder is disobedient to parents. Right? God is acting in his anger. He's turning us over to ourselves. We we see that. And as a result, the implication, big idea number eight, we are all witnesses to his anger. Chapter 2, verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Here's what Paul's saying. We know the judgment of God falls. We've seen it. We experience it. The judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Paul's saying we live in a world in which God in his wrath has temporarily turned man over to himself. And we are all witness to his anger. We are all victims of one another. 
And we are all guilty before him and one another. And if you read verse 2 and you conclude that the judgment of God rightly falls on those and you make the those somebody else, you, you, you somehow are separating yourself from all men and the wrath of God, the judgment of God somehow is just away from you, you're missing the point. You are the man. Number nine, God will satisfy his anger. There will be judgment. Verse three, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent, by the way, it's a big word. Let me tell you what it means. Unrepentant. Stuck in your pride, unwilling to turn. In your unrepentant, broken heart, prideful heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. See, God's wrath is revealed as he's turned us over to ourselves presently active but you need to understand something God's wrath is not completely finished not for those who are outside of Christ for those of us who are in Christ he takes the full wrath of God in our place but if you're sitting here and your life is not anchored into a relationship with Jesus, there's never been saving faith that would lead you to repentance, I want you to understand something. If you think you're going to stand before God and you're going to presume upon His kindness, you are mistaken. For a God who would pour out His wrath and His judgment on His Son for the sake of me and for the sake of the believers, I assure you, you will face wrath and fury. God's wrath is revealed, it is presently active, but it is not finished in the life of the unbeliever. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, introduces the gospel with a warning. God is real. He has revealed himself. He is angry. And the day of judgment is coming, and there will be wrath and fury. God will satisfy his anger. And our final big idea this morning, we are all subject to his judgment. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. We've already talked about who that is. The Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. 
for God shows no partiality. No partiality, no passes, no excuses. We will all stand before God guilty if left in our sin. Paul begins the gospel proclamation, his presentation to the Romans this way. If we don't see our guilt, if we don't see our depravity, if we, if we omit it from the gospel, we suppress the truth of who God is. We suppress his love on display in Jesus. We suppress Jesus' propitiation in full. In other words, we suppress Jesus as our substitute in full. And what he took on himself so that you and I might be redeemed. We suppress saving faith if we omit our sin and God's wrath from the gospel. See, we take saving faith to no longer be a life of repentance lived in desperation recognizing that my sin has separated me from God and suppressed the very truth of who he is. And I've got nothing. I can't add the backpack on. I can't just add something on. I am totally broken. And I am dead if left to myself. But in Jesus, I can live. And the repentance and the desperation that runs in definition of saving faith to Jesus, that is the gospel. And the other thing, it is a watered-down false gospel. You don't just add Jesus on. You don't just presume on his kindness. The very revelation of God was given so that we might repent. We might turn in saving faith. The other is a false gospel. See, apart from Jesus, you're dead. The day of wrath is coming for you. You are exposed and guilty before a wrong and angry God. And there will be wrath and fury. But church, there is hope. My friend, there's hope. Abiding in Jesus, there is life and life eternal. Because justified through your faith in him, in other words, declared righteous, declared right before God, through faith in Jesus, you are redeemed before a satisfied God. Jesus has took your place. He hung on a cross, suffered the separation from the Father and the shame and the consequence of your sin, and square on his shoulders fell the wrath and the fury of God in my place and in the place of everyone who would call upon his name in saving faith. While we suppress the truth of an almighty God. He supplied in mercy, in love, and in grace his son Jesus that we might be redeemed. As the team comes on up,
Perhaps you're here and there's never been a point in time in your life where you turned from the lie that is yourself and your sin and cried out in desperate, saving faith, repentant faith, that Jesus is the Son of God who was sent by a loving Father to pay the penalty for your sin. There's never been a moment where in true, repentant, saving faith you claimed Him as Savior, as God. I pray that the Holy Spirit would do a work in your heart and that this very morning he would reveal the truth of who God is and it would so overpower you that it would lead you in this very moment to pray, maybe for the first time, to confess your sin and your brokenness before God and to claim in saving faith the gift of his son Jesus. And for those of you who are here who abide with Jesus and you live a life of saving faith and repentance, I would remind you I know sometimes it's hard to talk about and I know sometimes it shames us. But our sin and the wrath of God has place in the gospel. To omit it is to suppress the truth of God's love for us. The truth of what he supplies for us. And the reality of our amazing, miraculous standing in his family as adopted children and all that that means. And so as we go out this week, I pray you go out refreshed and emboldened to proclaim the gospel in full, the good news in full, and that we would be challenged as we look back at how Paul begins to introduce the gospel to the Romans and to us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are good, worthy of honor and praise. Father, forgive us for suppressing the truth of who you are. Forgive us of our sin. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work in the life of any person in this room who does not know you in saving faith and repentance. Lord, I pray that today, right now, they would claim your son Jesus as Savior and as Lord. And Father, I pray for those of us who abide with your son. Lord, give us wisdom to see the gospel in full. And to be wowed by your supplied love and salvation. I pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen.